Welcome back to The Reeducation. I'm Eli Lake, and our guest is author Tevi Troy. On today's show, we are talking about July 4th and the legacy of the Declaration of Independence. Happy birthday, America. You don't look a day over 240. And to my British listeners, well, I will let Dirk Diggler express my sentiments on this Independence Day. You're not the boss of me. Yes, I am. Well, you're the king, huh? Yes! Don't you know, fucking touch me, man! No, no, no! You shut up, too! You're not the mother of me, and you're not my boss! You're not my mother! You're not my fucking mom! If you had to boil down the Declaration of Independence to a guttural expression, a vibe, if you will, it is, you're not the boss of me. Yes, there's a lot of beautiful prose. The Declaration's second paragraph, the one with the indelible line, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, is an eloquent argument for inalienable rights and against the divine right of kings. But most of our national charter is about the cruelty of King George III. It is an indictment. The king has dissolved our legislatures. He has stationed his army in our homes. He has detained us without trial. He has, quote, plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. King George III is not the boss of us. Now, many people have observed long before me that America is unique in that it is a country whose national identity is based on principles about the rightful order of society as opposed to a bloodline or a territory. America is an idea and an ideal as well as a nation. But with that comes a paradox. On the one hand, our founders were rebels, radicals, and rule breakers. On the other hand, they also understood that a free society requires rules. The case against King George in the Declaration was not only that he taxed the colonists without giving their representatives seats in Parliament, it was also that he failed to enforce laws in the colonies that protected the common good. No one is free in a state of anarchy. The weak are at the whim of the strong. This is why governments must be powerful enough to enforce order, but flexible enough to reflect the will of the governed. This concept is what Edmund Burke horrified by the excesses of the French Revolution called ordered liberty. So while the Declaration announces a revolution, it also makes clear that revolutions should be rare. Prudence, it says, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. This tension between order and liberty animates a lot of our nation's history. Now, I understand that there is an objection here, especially in recent years. Yes, in 1776, most of the people living in the colonies were themselves deprived of the very God-given rights enumerated in our national charter. It's true. There were African slaves, Native American tribes, not to mention women, all of whom were deprived of their liberty and often their lives. But on the national birthday, it's also important to appreciate how over time we've corrected those errors. Our union is never perfect. But over time, it has become more perfect. And our union has also become much larger. We are now a global power. Our government is a leviathan. Our sprawling bureaucracies promise in many ways 
to protect us from ourselves. We regulate everything from the specifications of mattresses to the ingredients of our soft drinks. Today, many parents won't let their children play outside with other kids unless there is an adult who is present. Not all of these changes are for the worse. It's better today that cars do not burn leaded gasoline. But when the FDA decides to destroy Juul, the electronic cigarette company, because some of its early ads were appealing to minors, or when the White House pressures social media companies to remove alleged disinformation from their platforms, well, I feel that we've strayed from our founding spirit. In the name of safety, we have diminished our freedom to abuse our freedom, to borrow a phrase from the great poet Howard Nemiroff. And it's from his poem, The Fourth of July, that I will end this monologue today and read it in full. Because I am drunk this Independence Night, I watch the fireworks from far away, from a high hill across the moony green of lakes and other hills to the town harbor, where stately illuminations are flung aloft, one light shattering in a hundred lights, minute by minute. The reason I am crying, aside from only being country drunk, that is, may be that I have just remembered the sparklers, rockets, Roman candles, and so on we used to be allowed to buy when I was a boy and set off by ourselves at some peril to life and property. Our freedom to abuse our freedom thus has since, I understand, been remedied by legislation. Now the authorities arrange a perfectly safe public display to be watched at a distance, and now also the contribution of all the taxpayers together makes a more spectacular result than any could achieve alone a few pale pinwheels or a firecracker fused at the dog's tail. It is indeed splendid. Showers of roses in the sky, fountains of emeralds, and those profusely scattered zircons, falling and falling, flowering as they fall, and followed distantly by a noise of thunder. My eyes are half afloat in happy tears. God bless our nation on a night like this, and bless the careful and secure officials who celebrate our independence now. Stay free, listeners, and remember that you are the boss of you, and don't let any king or film director tell you otherwise. Oh, but ain't that America for you and me? Ain't that America something to see, baby? Ain't that America home of the free? Well, for our Independence Day episode, the re-education is so lucky and grateful to have Tevi Troy, who is the director of the Presidential Leadership Initiative at the Bipartisan Policy Center. He is the former Deputy Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, a former White House official for George W. Bush. And he is the author of four books on the presidency, including, and I'm going to screw up the title, the What Trump, no, I'm sorry, What Jefferson Read, Ike Watched, and Obama Tweeted, which is my favorite of the Tevi Troy books. It's a really cool look at the presidency through the eyes of sort of the popular culture at the time. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on the re-education Tevi Troy. It's great to have you. 
Eli, thanks for having me. It is a terrific podcast. I know you're relatively new to the podcast space, but you're doing a great job. And the producers also bring in good audio and you have great conversations. So thank you. It's a regular in my listening. Oh, wow. That means the world to me. Thank you so much, Debbie. So let's just start to talk about on July 4th, our national charter, which is the Declaration of Independence. And I'm interested in your thoughts on what the declaration means culturally to Americans and also, you know, to, to kind of the idea of the presidency and our government, as opposed to sort of, we, we all know the arguments about, you know, the sort of the, the, the expression of enlightenment ideals in, in that document and, and why it was such a, a revolutionary act and everything like that. But what does it mean that we are a nation whose founding charter is this idea that we want to be free and that no one has the right to rule over us? You are not the boss of me. Yeah, I would say that the Declaration obviously has that sentiment, and that is a sentiment that has really been the through line for American history. You know, Ronald Reagan used to say in speeches, liberty binds us together. That is the unifying feature. But remember, the Declaration is not like the French Revolution, where it was just throw up the tables, upend everything, we're going to destroy everything, and then, then start from scratch. There was a real sentiment in there, a recognition that they come from the British system, they don't reject the British system. They just think it was being applied unfairly to them. And given that we need to be free and given our urge for freedom and for liberty, and they thought that something like the British system was the best way to get there, they said, we want to maintain those structures while at the same time getting rid of what was not being fair to them, what was not being applied fairly. And that's why liberty is paramount. Liberty is above the system of government they're in at the time. And so the, I think that's what they were trying to get at. And it does come out in some, in some ways even more clearly in the Constitution, which is the concept of ordered liberty. It's not just libertinism. It's not just we go out right. and do what we want, but we have a structure that guarantees people a voice in the system. That doesn't mean you're always going to get what you want. And Lord knows we've seen a bunch of protests in the last couple of years because people aren't always happy with the system. But we have a system. The rules apply to everyone. They are fairly or they're supposed to be fairly applied. And that is a system that works for us. Well, it's also the idea that we are constantly striving to make a more perfect union. As Tocqueville describes in his great sort of travelogue of America in the early 19th century, there were, you know, all kinds of criteria in the early American states for who could vote from everything from you had to be a property owner to no restrictions at all. And the states determined all these really fundamental things. It's hard for us to appreciate now in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision on Roe that like the, there was an understanding this is a huge country and and the people are going to figure out various ways, even though, you know, certainly our original sin of slavery and there's all there is an, a, a story about America kind of expanding who gets to be participating in this democratic experiment. But there's also an appreciation that no one is a, has a monopoly on all of this wisdom and that the states are going to kind of figure it out for themselves and that it's okay to be any religion you want in this country. It's okay to sort of be a utopian and form your own community. It's okay to, you know, be a busybody. And, and that's the that's the thing. It's like we are a country that contains multitudes because we believe that at the very local level, everyone is kind of free to do it their own way. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think you have an essential element in there, not just of America, but of Western civilization, which is this constant striving for improvement. 
the Lord knows we've got a lot of people who criticize the America founded in sin and there was slavery and there yeah. and we didn't treat women the right way in the beginning and all that stuff. But we are constantly trying to improve. We are striving to make things better. And I think that there's a real stark contrast between America and other elements of Western civilization, especially America, which is trying to fix things, which does recognize that there are flaws in the past and, and make things better, but also doesn't reject all of the past, doesn't reject everything that came before us and recognizes the benefit of our institutions, even if they require reform over time. That is an excellent point that reform is, and that's, and it's incidentally, despite the tumult of January 6th and other points in our, you know, I mean, the, the election that made John Quincy Adams president was kind of like more of a constitutional crisis in my view than January 6th, which did end up eventually with with a with a very with a tense moment there, you know, Joe Biden became the president. But, you know, Andrew Jackson was robbed. Right. I mean, you could argue that certainly. Certainly his supporters argued that. So we've lived through all kinds of these challenges, including the Civil War. But we've managed to have a lot of stability, I think, because of this kind of flexibility and the idea that people at a local level at least should try to work things out for themselves, but there's always going to be this sort of tension that we are free to create our own communities, but, you know, we're, we're not free to enslave other people. We're not free to abrogate the rights of others. And that is kind of this great American argument and conversation, yet it's been, in my view, remarkably stable. Yeah, I think the stability comes to the fact that at a certain point, the rules are the rules, right? There are a lot of right. people, I remember 2000, right? they weren't happy in the Gore versus Bush election. Uh, but at some point, Gore conceded and, and we moved on. And uh, you know, the, what I consider perhaps the most important election in Western civilization's history was the 1800 election, where you had a switch in, from parties of power, where Jefferson takes over from Adams. And Adams is a bit of a poor sport about it, but he leaves town. He doesn't, he doesn't see, he doesn't stay for the inauguration. And, right. He, he does leave town before it happens, which I think was immature. But, but he allowed the, tr the peaceful transfer of power. In fairness to Adams, it was vicious what Jefferson and his agents were doing and calling him a royalist. It was a really rough campaign. And I don't think Adams was, was really campaign. prepared for it. But every campaign fundamentally is rough. And yeah, but and again, he's yeah. also one of the first, the first ever to have to do this. So I, I mean, but that John that Adams was somebody who, if he would have been caught by the British, during the Revolutionary War would have been hanged. And he, was, a, he was accused in the 1800 election of basically being a royalist who was pretty much on, on, on their side. And I could see how that would, I mean, we know from his letters, it, it really bothered him. <laughs> Look, I, you know, in, I come to, uh, to praise Adams, not to bury him yeah. in a way, because what, what I'm saying is that even though he wasn't happy about what happened, and even though he didn't handle it in the way that we admire today or want people to today, he did let that transfer of power happen. He, yes. There were other people recommending that he act in other ways. And actually, as long as we're bringing this story up, this story is the centerpiece of a speech that Ronald Reagan gave in 1986 at the New York Harbor in, on July 4th. And I just reread the speech this morning. And it was amazing to me that in a presidential speech that they actually gave this much room for the entire story to be told. First, it told about how Jefferson and Adams were friends, how they worked on the writing of the declaration together. I think Jefferson is rightly recognized as the author of the declaration, but yeah. Adam had more of a hand in it than people usually acknowledge. I mean, it's, it's historians know, but in, in general, it's just given as if Jefferson kind of absorbed it and put it out there and, and no, nobody else was involved. Adams was heavily involved. And then 
they have this nasty, nasty political race that, that you mentioned, and Jefferson wins. Adams does kind of take his ball and go home, but allows the peaceful transfer of power. And then Jefferson has his two terms as president. And then afterwards, when they're both old men, they yeah, they become really good friends. Yes, but they okay. reconcile via post. They start right. sending letters back and forth to one another, and then they die on the same day, which Amazing. is actually July fourth, eighteen twenty-six, the fiftieth anniversary of the Declaration of Independence that both of them had so much to do. So not only is it an amazing story, but it's also amazing that Ronald Reagan tells this entire story in, in a speech. And, and just something I, you know, I follow presidential speeches. I worked in the White House. I saw presidential speeches developed. I just don't see that kind of thing coming out of the speech today. So it was, it was really remarkable. I agree with you, and it's a great story. And but I want to get to something, and I I'm fascinated by this, and maybe we don't have an answer. But I would love to get your thoughts. What culturally is the significance of the Declaration of Independence today? I mean, what does it tell us about being an American, that there's something in the back of our, ugh, I hate this term, but collective memory or collective imagination or whatever as a nation that understands that our origin is an act of revolution and that our kind of founders were radicals and that so i always look at it like this radicalism even the kind that has rejected america like the weather underground in some ways is rooted in an american tradition and that is rooted in some ways in 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 the declaration of independence which is that we're the only country that like we're the first country i should say that was founded on this i on an idea and a radical idea and a, and a revolutionary idea and that that's going to always be part of it. And it's going to be part of America, our story as Americans that, you know, we have, we, we, we kind of love these rebels. You know, it's, it's a super of- great question. In fact, the, it leads into the issue of what is conservatism in America, right? Yes. Because in Europe, conservatism is preserving the monarchy and the ancient institutions that are not actually right. beacons of freedom. Whereas, we, are, we are the preservers of ordered liberty. Right. We're, we're, but right. we're preservers of this of this radical act. And who is more likely to cite the Declaration and the Constitution today? It is the so-called conservatives who are kind of trying to preserve the sentiments of the revolution and, and the sentiments of this notion of ordered liberty, as you say. So both radicalism and conservatism are viewed very differently in a very different manifestations in America. Yes. It's a unique it's a unique idea. But it's strange. It's interesting to me kind of how it manifests itself in the modern tradition, which is to say that today, and I think that there's a fair point that there there seems to be, you know, it's very trendy intellectually and kind of especially among, you know, progressive elites to trash the founding of the country and and to emphasize the sins of the founders and the fact that they were many of were slaveholders. And I think that's all very important to understand the history that we're, hum- that, you know, we're, we're human and we can look back and we can see this as say it as, you know, we were in some ways born in sin as a nation, but they are in their demand for progress and in their kind of, they're part of the American story just as much, even if they're sort of rejecting it. Or am I going to, am I bending over backwards to be too fair in that sense? You may be a little too fair. Okay. But, um. Look, I think that they are, first of all, I think intellectually they're wrong in terms of this whole sense of 1619 project. And yeah, I agree with, I no, I agree with them that they're wrong. Right. And then politically, I also think you, you can't, you shouldn't underestimate the patriotism of the American public. And I remember I used to work for Ben Wattenberg, who's an LBJ speechwriter and a columnist and a, 
a thinker, writer, a real mentor to me and to Jonah Goldberg and some other people we know. And Ben used to say about the African-American community, he said, you can never go wrong overestimating the patriotism of the black community. People say, oh, they're, you know, they're, they vote Democrat. They're all left. It's not true. And it's true for the Hispanic community as well. And the all immigrant communities, they have this patriotic sense of America, the sense that yeah. here's the place where we want to be. We chose to be here. And I think all these people who are rejecting America and denigrating America and saying how terrible America is, you know, I think it's one of the reasons why Hispanics are moving over to the Republican Party. It's not because they love every aspect of Republicanism. And Lord knows I have some challenges with it today. But I, I think they don't like the beating down of America. And, and they just they recognize that there is something great about this country. And if you tell people that you live in a terrible place, they're not going to be happy. Yes, but my point is not, I agree 100% with what you said. And I am, you know, I, I consider myself a patriotic American and I don't like to denigrate, you know, I, I had plenty of criticisms as well of the 1619 Project. But at the same time, the tradition of social change in America is just as much rooted in the Declaration of Independence and the people who are now kind of the inheritors of that, even though, though I think that they're, they're ignorant. But at the same time, it is the idea that I'm impatient. I want progress right now. I'm going to challenge these authorities. There are certain things that you cannot, you know, you cannot do as the person who kind of claims to have a sovereignty over this place. And I'm going to defy it, civil disobedience. All of this, we have America. I mean, there are American figures that I consider just as much part of the national story that have embodied that people like Thoreau and Martin Luther King and so forth. And that that tradition of kind of social ferment and trying to perfect the union, even though I agree that there's a kind of radicalism that rejects that, that misunderstands American history, but they're still in some ways part of it, as well as a reaction to it. We also have a, a history in this country of nativism and we have a history of you know absolute brutality in the westward expansion and there's all of that as well so i'm just saying it contains multitudes and that debate is and then and i think that the way to understand like what the spirit of america is is to understand it as an argument as opposed to one or the other look i agree it's an argument i agree that there is a history yeah. of social change and sentiments for social change but I also think we have to recognize that if you, you mentioned Dr. King, look at Dr. King's speeches. I mean, yeah. he, was, he was trying to tell America to be its best self, to live up to its ideal. A hundred percent. Whereas the radicals today are not saying we want America to live up to the ideals. We reject American ideals. And so I think that there is a fundamental difference there, even though I agree with you that there is definitely a sentiment and a long history of movement towards social change in this country. I think well, let me let me let me modify. It. That's a very good point. And I don't want to in any way get a lot of the postmodern progressive types, the Foucault lovers off the hook. They are they are they are interested in the negation of a very American ideal. And I agree with you on that. But let's just talk about the sentiment. I mean, we saw the leader of Green Day, a nice Gen X band, and I'm sure we both remember. I don't know if all of our listeners do say he was renouncing his citizenship, you know, because of the Dobbs decision. And I thought to myself, and there's a lot of people in my family who are very pro-choice, who don't like the Dobbs decision, and they feel that, you know, this July 4th is a somber holiday because, you know, there are going to be states where women will not have the right as they see it to an abortion. But I'm like, you should be celebrating July 4th because now you're arguing it out in the states. Now you, now you have to persuade your other 
your fellow citizens that this is a right worth preserving. And that, you know, it makes it all the more urgent for you from that perspective to participate fully in our government in this great democratic experiment. So July 4th should be a joyous occasion and should give you kind of, you know, from from that perspective, even though I fully also believe that the pro-life side of this debate is just as American as well. And they probably are celebrating 50 years of, of, a, of a strategy of, you know, sort of jurisprudence that looked to originalism and focused on the court and the Supreme Court. But all of that, to me, you know, I would say the activist parts of it, the people who are going to be going out there and fighting, you know, in some of these states like Michigan and Pennsylvania, you know, they owe as much to Jefferson and Payne as everybody else. Look, I think to be an American means celebrate July 4th, whether Joe Biden is president, yep. Donald Trump is president, or whether Barack Obama is president, or whether you work for a president like George W. Bush and you get to sit on the White House lawn and see the fireworks from that place like I did. Obviously, George W. Bush is a president I worked for. I was proud to work for him. And I felt very patriotic at that moment, but I feel patriotic every July 4th, regardless of who is president. And I think that's really what it's about, that you have to say, I don't agree with everything that happens in this country. I don't agree with every decision that the government makes, but I respect the institution. I respect the system. And I know that you have more freedom and more opportunity here than anywhere else in the world. All right. Well, the remainder of our time, I want to just ask you, when did the celebration of July 4th really become a thing in our country? Well, it's interesting, you know, Adams, going back, we, we talked about yeah. Adams and Je Jefferson. He talked about the need for illuminations on July 4th. I think today we right. have that as fireworks. But so, you know, he was our second president. This goes way, way back. And I think I looked into presidents and how they celebrate July 4th. And I would say kind of three or four major things. They do a lot of them just go to, not just, but they go to the White House lawn and they, and they celebrate. That's kind of a thing that happens now. And presidents bring a couple hundred of their best and top supporters and their aides to the White House lawn. You've had a long tradition of presidents celebrating on the water. Coolidge went fishing. He, Hoover went to the Rapidan River. FDR went to the Bahamas. JFK went sailing. So Hold on, I, FDR I, went to the Bahamas for the July 4th? Yeah, that great? <laughs> so, and, and then you have presidents <laughs> who do what you would expect them to do. Ike played golf, of course. He was a famous golfer. Nixon went to Key Biscayne, his southern White House. Reagan went to his ranch. Bush went to Kennebunkport. You know where he had his. What did What did you think of Trump's military parade? Remember that year when he did that? Well, that that was actually the the third category. I was going to put these yeah. things in, which is some kind of military display. Adams did a military parade, and Trump did that. I don't know that that celebration of American military hardware. I got to say, I went because I thought it was really cool. To <laughs> Uh, I took my kids and we, we saw all these various, you know, various implements of, of American power. I'm not sure it's what I want a president to do every year, but it, it was kind of cool to see these things that you could not ordinarily see. But, but I do feel like it wasn't as unifying as I want July. Yeah. And you know, Ronald Reagan said in that great speech that I mentioned earlier, he, he had this line in there, which is he talked about the things that bring us together. And he says, there's more that brings us together than divides us. And, and I think that's a really nice sentiment because today it's all focused on not only divisiveness intellectually, like we are different from them and they are different from us and we don't, you know, we're red states and they're blue states, but also divisive politically, the sense that your path to the number, to 270 electoral votes is by winning your people only and getting your people to turn out and hoping yeah. people don't show up to vote. Whereas, you know, in the 1960 campaign, Kennedy's campaign manager said, 
there is no state in which we will not be competitive. That doesn't mean we're going to win every state, but we are trying to win every state. That was a very, very close election. And, and it's good for Kennedy that they did try and win every state. Today, you have... It's good for, it's good for Kennedy that the various crime families of the East Coast in Chicago were friends with his father, Joe. Right. And then LBJ was on his ticket in health and tech. <laughs> I, I get it. But it's just this sense that politically that you're trying everywhere is very different from where, where we are 60 years later. Now, let's say, you know, Ron DeSantis runs for president in 2024. He, on day one, is going to say, I'm not going to spend any time in New York. I'm not going to spend any time in California. Yeah. In Illinois, Massachusetts, Maryland. I just write these states off. And similarly, let's say Joe Biden runs for re-election. He's probably going to say, I'm not going to bother with Texas, Wyoming, and Idaho, and South Carolina. And I just don't think it's good for America that you have the sense of you're the president of some states, not all states. And the irony is that if you are a Republican or a conservative, especially in New York City, you're probably 20 times more enthusiastic about de Blasio. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, not de Blasio, DeSantis. Oh, God forbid de Blasio. Anyway, but you, you know what I'm And if you're like a progressive, you know, in Dallas, Texas, like my uncle, you know, you're probably an obsessive Rachel Maddow person because you're surrounded by a bunch of people with whom you disagree and that you anyway, I always found that to be I think that the, the people who are like sort of most committed to a particular party or a set of ideas are usually the ones who find themselves in a minority and having to constantly defend themselves. And so I think it's like a bad strategy as well. But I agree with you that we should have more of a kind of universal sense that like, well, we're all Americans today and let's celebrate it. And part of that is that, and for some good reasons in the last 50 or 60, 70 years, we, you know, have had a sense that everything personal has become political. And while I understand that in the context of second wave feminism, which made, I think, some important points, and I think we've evolved in a lot of ways and not all ways, but in, in a lot of ways, it's very good. But it's, it, there's something that that when everything becomes kind of contentious in our personal lives, there's no room for that kind of like just appreciating, you know, the, the diversity and the beauty of America and all these kinds of things. I think, you know? I think you're making a really interesting point here and it's a little afield, but I, I want to talk about how you, you talked about your, your cousin, or your uncle who lives yeah. in Dallas and he's in the minority, but that kind of allows him to hone and sharpen his views. And I went to college in the late eighties. And as a conservative, I was certainly a minority on the campus. I went to an Ivy League school, but there was a sense that you could have the arguments and that you actually sharpened and honed your thinking because you were in the minority and you had to push back, whereas everybody else just kind of went along right. with the blob and, the, and the, the overall crowd. Today, I fear, and now I have kids who are going in, into college, that you can't make the arguments because you could get canceled or written out or it can destroy your career. And, and that, that really worries me, the sense that as Americans, we can't have disagreements without some punishment being imposed upon the people. Especially since America, the very essence of our country is a disagreement. We, that's what we are. We are a country uh, and also of, of all kinds of like kind of competing tensions. Like we're the country. I love this about our country. We're a country that, you know, we were we are a country of sin of 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 sin cities like New Orleans or Hot Springs, Arkansas, or Atlantic City, where you know for decades, some cases you know close to a century, gangsters kind of ran the roost, 
all the politicians were corrupt and you could do any number of self-destructive things. You could use your freedom to abuse yourself and your freedom as much as you wanted. And then we're also a country of Salt Lake City. We're also a country of temperance unions. We're also a country of Alcoholics Anonymous and 12 step, and we invented the 12 step programs. We're also a country of really deeply spiritual people who believe that they want to have their communities in such a way that's free of all that. And we're big enough that we can have both. And I really love that about this country. And so when I, you're right, like when I, the, the, the idea that now some of our most important institutions, our universities, have been taken over by people who are interested in purging dissent as opposed to kind of embracing debate, it's un-American. And on this July 4th, we should, we should recognize we are a country born in argument, even if it turns out that people like Senator Calhoun were in the wrong. And we can now say 150 years later that he was dead wrong and his interpretation of federalism led to human bondage really bad and we should not have had it. But nonetheless, we kind of like, you know, that's how it was. He had to, he argued it out. We did have the Civil War, obviously, but that's the, that's the thing is that, yes, it's, it's, it's quite possible that in 50 years, the arguments that you and I thought were true, were going to be seen as totally wrong. That's okay, because the way that we eventually arrive at that truth is because we are arguing with one another. And that is, that's a great American innovation. And I hate that we're kind of maybe losing it in this next generation, though I'm more optimistic, Tevi, I'll tell you that now. I am now more optimistic than I was like six months ago. And can, can you just talk a little bit about the nation for your optimism? I am inherently an optimist. I said, I, I'm a, a Ben Wattenberg was a mentor and he was one of the biggest optimists of, of all time. And he said that the good news is the bad news is wrong is one of his books. So I, I, you know, I can talk about optimism, but I'd love to know your reasons for optimism. The, my, I'm mainly optimistic because we have seen now in the last six months or so, various cancel mobs shoot for aim for the king and miss so there was a huge campaign against joe rogan at the beginning of the year and it failed and there was a huge campaign against you know dave Chappelle's final special for netflix and just a month ago the ceo of netflix said maybe you shouldn't be working here if you can't handle that you know comedians are going to make you uncomfortable occasionally and we're seeing politically when given the chance, whether it's school board elections or these kind of off, you know, with Governor Yunkin and things like that, that there has been such an overreach by a kind of th this technocratic elite that we have now had voters saying what I, you know, what I believe the founders were saying to the to King George, you are not the boss of me. You, you do not get to tell my kid you know, that they, you know, to keep them out of school for more than a year and to do all these other things. And so that, the, the, that stuff to me is, it's, it's, a, it's a natural correction. It's allowed in our system and efforts to try to stifle it, whether it was the Association of School Boards asking the Justice Department to investigate some of these protests and so forth, have failed. They have been exposed and they have failed. So we're starting to sort of see that, it, that this movement is not as powerful and this approach and this style of discourse is not as bad. And I think that there's so many people who just nod along and they they're thinking they kind of, they're turning into double thinkers, which is what we associate with the totalitarian societies where they're thinking one thing and they're just sort of expressing just to sort of make, make life a little easier. But eventually that's, there's going to be a tipping point. So I don't think that we have like, 
I don't think there's a lot of strong support for, for some of those radical new ideas, especially the idea of purging dissent. Yeah, so I agree with you, and it's basically the argument that our friend Abe Greenwald was making in the yes. revolution, and there are some good signs. But I also want to issue a cautionary note, which is you shouldn't have to be Dave Chappelle or Joe yeah. Rogan to be able to push back against this. You should be able to be a normal, regular, ordinary person. And if they come after you for saying something mildly not politically correct at the moment, you shouldn't have your life taken away. So it's great that Joe Rogan pushed back and survived. And it's great that Chappelle is there and that the Netflix CEO said, hey, maybe you guys should work somewhere else. But I'll know that we've succeeded when the ordinary person is, doesn't have to live in fear of what they say on a regular basis. That's a great a great point. And it's sort of tying it back to the idea of the Declaration of Independence. I just wonder if the political leaders, particularly on the Democratic side, understand that if they tie themselves too tightly to the technocratic scolds, that they're screwing with something that's kind of like deeply embedded in the American character. That no, like if there's something just universally despised at the overly officious, like we always have these figures. I mean, like, you know, we have figures who kind of come in and try to impose new rules and, you know, and everything like that. But there's some, there's always a sort of resentment. Yeah, They've I mean, never been cool. They're, they're kind of the modern day Puritans, which is sort yeah. of ironic since the Puritans were against any kind of sexual deviationism. But, you know, the, the, these modern day progressives, they don't have any of the sexual hangups of, of the Puritans, but they want to stop everything else you do. And they want to limit how you think, how you talk, what you know, substances you ingest, unless it's marijuana, of course. But yeah, I, th I think that if, that that is a, a noisome aspect of American culture and, and something that, that is worth pushing back against and something to think about on this July 4th. And with that, Timmy Troy, I really want to thank you. you know, we, I will have you on again and again. I really appreciate it. And happy July 4th. Happy birthday, America. You ain't a beauty, but hey, you're all right. Amen to that. Happy birthday, America. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.